again, welcome everybody. Good to see all of you. And in some cases I can see you, so that's great. Um, we're in the fifth Psalm, Psalm five. And uh, I don't remember all who was with us last week, but I have given a title to this, uh, Deliverance from Dangerous Deception. Uh, the superscription tells us this is a Psalm of David. So we will assume that is accurate. And uh, real quick, the first three verses, which we did pretty much deal with last week, but I draw your attention again to, as David uh, addresses the Lord, and I think you would agree, there's a real sense of urgency here. Um, give ear to my word, give attention to our sound. But notice the three references or three titles of God that he uses. First, in verse 1, O Lord, and again, that's in capital letters, so that means Yahweh. Then verse 2, my king, and the end of verse 2, my God. So you, you have this sense that whatever the exact circumstances of David at this point in his life, and whatever the urgency of the situation, he is only one person whom he can go to, only one sovereign judge, sovereign Lord, and that is his king. This is a theocracy. Don't always, I'm sure you are not unfamiliar with that word, but Israel was a theocracy. God ruled the nation, and he ruled the nation through the kings, uh, and uh, the priests were the mediators of that relationship, but I'm getting a little beyond the point. So it's just a, it's an amazing way in which the, uh, the king, King David, addresses God here. And then in verse 3 is this quite wonderful sense of confident trust in the morning. You hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice to you. Uh, that could mean a literal sacrifice, or it could mean a metaphor for laying his requests before the Lord. In other words, he is coming to the Lord in prayer, and that is part of his sacrifice to God each day, each morning, excuse me. And then the, the last term of the end of verse 3 is, and watch. Uh, the sense of, of that is, there's a sense of expectation. God has heard, and God will answer. And I had you quickly reference it last week, uh, Matthew chapter 7, where the Lord Jesus talks about the certainty of God hearing and answering our prayers. Now we'll pick up in verse 4. In verse 4 through 7, um, in a sense, we have kind of a rather marvelous description of the character of God. And what David does here is he contrasts how God looks at the wicked, verse 4, 5, and 6, and how God God looks at him, and uh, you see that with the, the term but that starts verse 7, so he's setting up a contrast, but it's focusing on the character of God, so just look, look at these words as I read them, and we'll come back and talk about them. I'm going to read 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now the contrast. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, that's that wonderful Hebrew word, chesed, steadfast, loyal, covenant love, but I, through the abundance of your chesed, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So, again, there is a, an implied contrast here in how God looks at the wicked, the rebellious, habitual, defiant person, and the one that God has a covenant relationship with, verse 7. So, look at these Look at these words and phrases. David has said, I present my sacrifices. Again, that could mean literal sacrifice. It could mean a metaphor for his prayers. And he watches. He waits. He has an expectation. Now, wh why does he say that? Because David knows his God. Even though David will have times where he falls and stumbles and commits egregious sin, 
The character and nature of God is something he absolutely depends upon. And he keeps coming back to that again and again and again in the Psalms. So he says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Now, that you, know, you would almost say, well, duh. But it's important, important to remember that. God is absolutely perfect, pure holiness. So wickedness and evil are abhorrent to him. They violate his character. They violate everything he stands for, everything he does, and everything he wants for his creation. But as you know, his creation, his creatures, his the human beings, are in rebellion against him. So David just states categorically, you do not delight in wickedness. And then this statement, evil may not dwell with you. Evil is not welcome in his house. Now, let's step, step back for just a moment and get a really big 100,000-foot view of this. Because of the nature and character of our God, if we, his image bearers, humanity, are to have a relationship with him, something has to change. God either has to fudge on his character, or God has to solve our problem, which is sin and rebellion, which is what he does. And you know, we just celebrated that uh, the other weekend, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now that's going ahead from this psalm. But the, the, the thing I love about this is David completely and totally understands the character and nature of his God. And from your perspective and my perspective, and even from David's perspective, God had to do something. If evil cannot dwell in, in God's house, is not welcome in God's house, he does not delight in wickedness, something has to happen. And of course, in the ancient uh, world, in, in the time of ancient Israel, that's what the sacrifices were all about. You would sacrifice your, the lamb or whatever this particular sacrifice was, the burnt offering, peace offering, whatever, that would use that God to atone. Atone means to cover for sin. David understood that. And so he continues then by kind of talking about the arrogant independence of the rebellious sinner, the boastful. So that is a characteristic of the rebellious, defiant sin, sinner. Boast. They don't care about God. They don't care about his character. They don't care about his nature. And so even in their sin, there's a boastful arrogance, a, a hubris about the rebellious sinner. And David says again categorically, I know my God. The boastful shall not stand before their, your eyes. No possibility of, of a relationship with God if that boastful, arrogant, defiant sin continues. You hate all evildoers. That evildoer, you could translate that loosely, the habitual doer of sin. Now, the word hate um, in, in the Hebrew, there are a couple of different words for that in the Hebrew, but the word hate is a, is a word of emotion. And obviously, you understand that. But just understand that even God has emotions. God is an emotional God, and part of the reason why we as his image bearers also have emotions. That's part of who we are as a human being. So when, when David says, you hate all evildoers, it's an emotional response of God to defiant, rebellious sin. And that hate is he so abhors that that he cannot have a relationship with that person. That person will not stand before him. And again, that drives us to the big picture view of the Bible. God must solve this. If that is a statement of fact, and it is, verse 4, verse 5, if they are statements of fact, God has to solve this problem, which, of course, again, is why he ultimately will send Jesus. And then verse 6 is a statement of how God responds to this, this defiant rebellion. You destroy those who speak lies. That's a word of judgment. You destroy those who speak lies, this, this iniquity. And one of the ways that Hebrew word is sometimes translated is iniquitous lies. 
And the Lord abhors, oh, that's a strong word. It's related, if we translate it, it's related to the word abomination. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty. Those who wantonly shed blood, i.e. kill, and the deceitful man, the treachery and deception. You know what? Verse 6 is making it clear to us, and it was clear to King David, these people are in grave, mortal danger because of the character of God. In my one of my other Bible studies, it was actually one this morning, we are in, um, we're, we're studying a, a passage in the Gospel of John where, where Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit and, and, and so on. And it's, it's interesting in the middle of, or certainly near the end of, of chapter, uh, chapter uh, or the beginning of chapter 16, excuse me, he's going to send the, the Holy Spirit who convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we spent about a half hour on that this morning. One of the roles and responsibilities of the third person of the Trinity at Pentecost is to begin his work of convicting the world. One of his key, key works is convicting people of their sin, convicting people of their need for a Savior. And so many people, to really understand sin is to understand how much of an affront it is to our God, who is our creator, and our Redeemer who loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. So David, in this quite wondrous set of verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, because of the nature and character of God, who absolutely abhors sin, a rebellious sinner who refuses his grace is in grave mortal danger. And the Holy Spirit through his multiple, multifaceted work in a person's heart and a person's life, is convicting them of their need for a Savior who can solve their problem and give them righteousness and help them to understand, as Jesus says in that passage, that the ruler of this world is judged. And that is, of course, at the cross. So I'm trying to weave these wonderful verses in this incredible short psalm into the larger big picture of what God is doing in his redemptive plan. Humanity has a very serious problem. The human condition is a serious, serious condition, but it is one that is in grave danger, grave mortal danger, eternal separation from God, if they do not let God solve the problem, which is what he did through the cross. So that's part of this paragraph in Psalm 5. But now the other part of the contrast. But I, now David speaking of himself, through the abundance of your steadfast love. Now, when we were still at First National, one of the days I wrote that on the pad, that the Hebrew word for that is chesed. And if you bring it into English, it would be C-H or H-E-S-E-D, chesed. And I would encourage you to just write that down, and that's one Hebrew word you should try to remember. It is an absolutely marvelous word. There is a book written by a theologian, and it's an entire book just on that word. And it's, a, it's just an amazing, an amazing word. It's a noun. And what it captures in terms of the character and nature of God Sometimes it's translated, here it's translated steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated loyal love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. But I elaborate on it just a little bit. As I would embellish it, it would be the steadfast, loyal, covenant love of God. So David is in effect saying, I, through the abundance of your chesed, your loyal covenant love, I am in a covenant relationship with you. So let's just take that phrase. But I, Jim Ekman, through the abundance of your loyal covenant love, am I in a covenant relationship with the living God? Yes, I am. And I hope every one of you in the class this morning is. You come into that covenant relationship with God. It is called the new covenant, not the old Mosaic covenant. Christ fulfilled all that. But that new covenant relationship. 
So yes, you and I could say exactly the same thing, but I, through the abundance of your covenant loyal love, will enter your house. Now, what I did in my Bible is I circled the word enter in verse 7 and circled the word not stand in verse 5 and connected the two of the line. What a contrast. The evil one who has rejected God's grace will never, ever stand before God's eyes, will never have a relationship with him. But David says, because I am in a loyal covenant relationship with you based on your love, I can enter your house. I can have a worshipful, intimate relationship with you. So he concludes, I will bow down towards your holy temple. That's where the ark was, in fear of you. And he's, and this is something we've talked about many times, that word fear in the Old Testament, well, indeed, in the New Testament as well, it can mean cowering, you know, like you're in front of something that's life-threatening and you cower, you're so afraid. But it's much, much larger than that. Because of the relationship we have with God, based on our faith and trust in him taking care of our sin problem, that fear is a way of expressing worship. It's really a worship work. And that's how I would encourage you to think about it. So you have this this wonderful mixture of concepts that David is weaving into this. Confidence and trust in God, a free access to God, he brings his prayers to him every morning. He can enter into the temple with a, a marvelous worship and adoration of God. And that's why Psalms like this are so applicable to you and me today, because exactly what he's saying here applies to us. We're in a covenant relationship with God. We have 24-7 access to him. We can bow down before him, and we can worshipfully adore him because of who he is and what he's done. And so in the urgency of David's cry in the first three verses, there's this quite amazing confidence and understanding. And so, you know, I'd ask it just rhetorically. Does David know his God? Yes, he does. And that knowledge not only comes from his experience, but it comes from the Word of God. David writes, and it would be decades till we get to that at the rate we're going, because we're not going to do all the Psalms. But Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms, is a meditation on the Word of God. It's a wonderful Psalm to study, very long. So David has an understanding of his God, his character, his nature, and that's the genesis of his confidence and trust, and he understands because of what God has done to take care of his sin problem, he has free access to his God. All right. Took us a while to get through that. Any questions? Got it? Yep. I have a question. Uh, yes. Um, what's the name of the uh, book that is that uh, and the author for the Hesed, the word Hesed? Oh, uh, well, it, it, the, the title is Chesed, and it's transliterated into English. I, I, I think it may be C-H-E-S-E-D, and then there's a subtitle, something like a, a Study in God's Covenant Love or something like that. Honestly, I cannot remember the author. I, I'm sorry, I just don't remember the author. I can look it up, and I can get back to you on that. But it's that's the title. It was actually, this, this guy, this was his doctoral dissertation, and it would, would later be published. I do remember it's very expensive because <laughs> I think it's I think it's published in Britain. But I can look that up for you, Russ. I I just don't remember the author's name. I'm sorry about that. Jim, all right, thank you. Yeah, you mentioned the Holy Spirit convicts all humanity of their sin, and then there's a verse later <clears throat> in the Bible that says that. All, all men are without excuse, meaning mankind. Um, and then um, can you just kind of comment on that? I know we talked about it uh, again a few years ago. Regarding every, when you think of the entire 
globe, there's a lot of people. And what we're saying here today is that all humanity in the farthest corner of, of this globe are aware uh, that there is a God. And then from that, however it develops, can you, um, can you kind of comment on that? We talked about different ways that God reveals himself. Well, I think that's the only way to, to really think about this and answer it. And that, that phrase, they're without excuse, is from uh, Romans chapter 1. Paul um, is talking about in the beginning of that chapter, verse 1, uh, or chapter 1, verse 18 and following. And in that section, the Apostle Paul is laying out God's revelation in his creation. And uh, the, end, the end is, instead of worshiping the creator, they worship created things, create out of wood and, and, and stone, idols, and all that stuff that he, he says. And what have they done with that revelation? A key phrase there in, in Romans 1 is they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2 of Romans, chapter, 14, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and following, he uses the word witness, that the conscience of humanity is a witness to God. It's a very important word there in that, in that section of chapter 2. That God, the human conscience, which has an innate sense of right and wrong, which is quickly suppressed, quickly hardened, but that too is a revelation. And then in chapter 3, he deals with the moral law of God, which is revealed, which reveals the moral character of God. And then in chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 3 of the book of Hebrews, is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And in that section of Hebrews 1, uh, the author says he's the final revelation of God. So the bottom line of what you're saying, and, and that would be accurate in terms of one of the functions of the Holy Spirit today, is through all of those revelations, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to the rebellious sinner of their need for God, of how he could solve their problem, but they reject it. And if they reject it, then that it produces part of what David is saying in this, this psalm, the mortal danger they really are in. God has no one, and, and I know I've said this before in a class over the years, but at the great one throne judgment, no one is going to be able to look God in the eyes and say, I never knew about you. I knew nothing about you. And my perspective on that, and I can't prove that because the Bible just doesn't explain to us what's going to happen. But I believe as God opens the books, he's going to reveal to them, not so much their sin, but every, because of their sin, every instance where they willfully, intentionally rejected the grace of God. God has given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond to his revelation. And as he sends revelation, they respond to it. He keeps sending more. So um, I hope that answers your question. All right. Let's close out our study of this psalm, which is uh, verses 8 through 12. And it's the third section. And here... David becomes even more explicit in talking about the character of God, but talking about those who reject that revelation of God's character and weaves into it quite awful <laughs> descriptions of, of those who reject God. And then again, in verse 11 and verse 12, is the contrast of those who have accepted and respond to God's revelation in his character. So, as the, whatever the specific circumstances of David's life at this point where he's writing the psalm, and he expressed the urgency of God responding one through three, describing his understanding of the nature and character of God, verses four through seven, lead me, O Yahweh. Now, that little phrase, lead me, is the word, uh, is a verb in an in imperative mood here. It's command, as, as like a shepherd. I'm the sheep. You're the shepherd. Lead me. It's the language of Psalm 23, verse 3. That Almost everybody knows that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want all that. It's the same language of that psalm. So it's, it's like 
God is the shepherd, I'm the sheep. Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness. As I said earlier, God, David is, is, is a man who knows his God, knows his, his character and nature. And here it is again. God's way is a life of purity, a life of righteousness. He makes that possible. For the Old Testament saint, through the shed blood of the Lamb, which brought atonement and produced righteousness based on faith and understanding what God was doing. So lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Lord, I'm in danger. They're after me. I must depend on you for guidance and protection, for safety, for security. And it's only found in your righteousness. So like a shepherd, lead me. Make your way straight before me. And that, of course, is God the shepherd leading, God the shepherd directing. God is never, ever going to lead us into sin. God is never, ever going to lead us into something that puts our soul in mortal danger. His paths are straight because he is leading us. And so you, you have, this is a very well-developed theme throughout the Psalms, and actually it's even in the Proverbs, that, that God makes our way straight. It takes you back to the first Psalm when, when we, we studied that a number of weeks ago, where King David, and I, I'm not sure he wrote that, so I shouldn't have said that. We don't know exactly who wrote that. But the psalmist there says, you have two paths in life. Just make sure you choose the right one. It's the path that's following God. Or it's the path that is following uh, the world, following sinners. And so he's just reaffirming what is an absolute truth. God, make my path straight. I don't want to wonder. I don't want to get off the track. I don't want to get off the track of moral purity and righteousness. I want to walk with you in loving obedience. And your path is a path of righteousness. Now, in verse 9, and he says four things here in this verse. He characterizes his enemies, whom are the enemies of God as well. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now, these, uh, these phrases and terms in verse 9 are all uh, metaphors, figures of speech. The first, so these are four characteristics. And again, not only of David's personal enemies, but quite frankly, the enemies of God. There is no, no truth in their mouth. It takes you back to verse 6. They speak lies, iniquitous lies, no truth. All truth is God's truth. But David will say in Psalm 119, actually Jesus says it as well in John 17, your word is truth, O God. But if they don't know God, which they don't, then do not expect truth to exit from their mouth. In fact, their inmost self is destruction. Their plan is actually self-destructive. And in the inner self, and that that is really hard to translate that. I think that's probably a good translation. But David is getting inside the person, into their heart. Because that's what God is really interested in. The Sermon on the Mount, our fullest account of that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The fullest, Jesus is just over and over again, he's talking about what's going on in your heart. And so he's saying that their inmost self, in their heart, the, the, where they, where they, the, the genesis and source of their, of their motivations, the genesis and source of their attitudes that no one else sees, but inside, it's self-destructive. The, that's what Jesus is saying. You've heard it said you should not commit murder, but I say unto you, if you look with anger in your heart towards your brother, you, you're guilty. If you call your brother a terrible, terrible name, you curse your brother, you're guilty. 
You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say unto you, look at lust upon a woman, you're guilty. Much, much deeper understanding of righteousness. So David is, because it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is looking inside a person and focusing on what is really going on inside of them. That hardness of the human heart. Those layers and layers and layers of hardness that develops over years and that hardness to sin where there's no longer guilt. There's no longer feeling bad about what you've done. The encrustation of years and years of rebellious living creates a self-destructive lifestyle. And then he says, and again, focusing on their language, their speech, their throat is an open grave. And, you know, that's very much metaphorical. But their throat, which, you know, is what produces, the, is an open grave. It's, 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 it's ominous. It's ruinous. Deep inside. And they flatter with their tongue. They're, there's no truth in their mouth. Their throat's an open grave. It's ruinous. And they flatter. That's the deceit. That's the deceitful things he talked about at the second part of verse 6. That deceit always characterizes, and he's making broad stroke statements, that always characters, characterize a person who's my enemy and God, your enemy. So in a sense, verse 9 is a further elaboration of what we see in verse 6. And in all of these situations, uh, by I, I mean these metaphorical statements in verse 9, it's really focusing on what's coming out of your mouth. What are you saying that reflects what's really going on inside you, that hardened and crusted heart, the innermost self is bent to destruction. It's self, and you see it with the words. That's why the Bible has so much to say about our speech. So much to say about our, our words and how we can hurt and harm people. And James in his epistle twice addresses that. So because of that, verse 10 is a declaration of judgment. But would you note it is David asking God to do this? This is imprecatory. This is David asking God, because he is righteous, pure, and holy, to be the agent of their judgment. God, you take care of them. And that is not an improper thing to do, because often it is out of our control or even out of our responsibility to deal with enemies of God because we can't pick up a gun and shoot them. That's still murder. But God can take care of them. So that's what they, that's why this is imprecatory. I wrote that on the board when we were still at First National too. But God, you take care of them. Make them bear their guilt, oh God. You declare them guilty. You take all of the evidence against them. And you deal with their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsel. God, you know the stupidity and deceitful nature of what they're saying and what they do. And Lord, you know that those innermost issues of the heart will be self-destructive. Lord, let that work out in their lives. Let that self-destructive, hardened heart work out in their lives. Let them fall. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. And now it isn't just personal. For Lord, they have rebelled against you. An imprecatory call to God is not a personal vendetta. It is a call for God to be just and to be righteous. God, you are the only one who has the right to judge them for their iniquity, for their sin. And God, I'm asking you to take care of them. Do it. 
And again, this is imprecatory. It's, it's hard sometimes because if you study all of the Psalms, many, many times the psalmist is doing this. Lord, it's out of my hands. I can't deal with this, but you can. You take care of them. So that's what David is doing here. We don't know who these enemies are. We don't know what they've done to David, but we get the sense of what he says. He urgency cries out to God in verse 1 through 3. But he keeps coming back to the God that he knows. And then verse 11 is again, notice there's a strong adversative there. But now David is back to talking about himself, talking about the righteous ones. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Take refuge in you. Refuge from what? Well, from the deceptive deceivers that he's talking about here, but even broader, big picture. Take refuge in you because you and you alone, God, can solve my sin problem. No one else can solve that, but you can. And so we saw at the very, the very last sentence of Psalm 2. Remember that? Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son. So for you and me in 2020, to you and me to take refuge in God is to take refuge in Jesus, whose death, burial, and resurrection purchased our redemption, who then went back to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, who indwells us. We can take refuge in the Lord. He has solved our problem. He's dealt with our rebellion. Let those who take refuge in you rejoice. I love this. Let them ever sing for joy. This should produce, the joy should produce outbursts of worship and song to the Lord. Spread your protection over them. Again, that's the language of Psalm 23. That's the language of a shepherd. The language of a shepherd who spreads his cloak over his lost sheep, protects and nurtures them. That's what he's talking about. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Reason, verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And by the way, that word shield in the Hebrew is not a shield that just protects a little bit of your chest. It's a whole body shield. It virtually mm -hmm. covered the entire body as the soldier went into warfare. In Psalm 30, verse 5, the cry there is this protection endures forever. This isn't Dr. Rickman. This is, yes. I, then Rob, I have a question about imprecatory call to God. Yes. Uh, back in, uh, what verse was it? Six. Um, that wasn't that long ago, but the judgment of the, the evil or the guilty. Verse 10 there, make them bear your guilt. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm having, I'm still struggling with that a little bit because I, in some of the old Testament, this psalm is typical. We are called the duty to defend the righteous, to defend righteousness. Um, and it, I get I get some sense of practicality here. There are some things outside of our control, but is is that what this is talking about? And is imprecatory? Uh, is is that a duty thing, or is it a deferred thing? I can't do it. Therefore, I'm, I'm shouting to you, God to do what's right, because I know you are right and will do what's right. You're incapable of doing anything else. Uh, in a way, it's both, but it is, um, it, it is in the sense, Rob, of not only dealing with that enemy and, and therefore your enemy, oh God, now, in space-time history, you know, the next minute, I'd like you to do that. But also, in the longer, more e eternal perspective of God dealing with that person, finally, and categorically, and in, in a once-for-all situation. And so, 
it it does really the way you put your question it does really fall back on only god can really finally and definitively deal with that rebellious person because this enemy of david's is clearly also an enemy of god and the reason that person or these people whatever the situation is is because of their character and their nature and what they have been doing, which evidences their hardness of heart and rebellion, not only perhaps against David, but against God. God, you're the only one that can take care of that. Now, how does God take care of that? Well, God can take care of that in space-time history by sending immediate judgment upon that person. That's what he did to Pharaoh in the Pharaoh of the Exodus. That's what he did to, to uh, a, a number of uh, the key individuals in the history of Israel during the monarchy when they're fighting like Goliath uh, against the Philistines. God immediately takes care of Goliath. David shows up and says, how are you guys scared of an uncircumcised Philistine? Why, he's no match for God. God will take care of him. And I'm going to be the one that got you. Know, and so there's an imprecatory nature that God's going to take care of Goliath immediately. But right. sometimes, and, and Rob, it's, David has the confidence in God. Yes. And I mean, and so it's, it's, it enables him to do that remarkable thing in actually killing Goliath. But for the most part, you and I are not going to be a situation where we can pick up a sling and kill our enemy. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, God, you got to take care because you all have been in a situation, I, uh, I'm assuming, where there's something or someone in your life that is so difficult, and you just do have to cry, God, you have to take care of them. I can't, I can't take care of them. I, I can't handle this. But Lord, you can. Neutralize the terrible impact they're having. Uh, take, take care of these harsh, harmful words that they're using. Uh, I mean, on and on, whatever. The, the, mm-hmm. So it, the imprecatory nature of praying like this is, God, ultimately, I know you're going to take care of this. Ultimately, you are going to judge them. But Lord, can you also take care of it now? They are hurting you. They're harming your way. They're harming what you stand for. They're laughing at you. They're mocking you. God, can you take care of them? I mean, all of that is imprecatory, Rob. Right. And it's, it's working through what David is doing here, what he knows about his God, what he knows about his God's abhorrence of sin and wickedness. And God, ultimately, you have to take care of that. And in the macro, that's why I had us consider that. In the macro big picture, God does take care of it by sending his son. Yeah. But still, yeah. if you reject his son, you still will face eternal judgment an eternal separation from him. But what's interesting to me in this passage is that David is responsible for protecting an entire nation. Yes. Yes. And that perhaps is part of the weight he's feeling as well uh, upon this. Uh, whatever the unique situation, the unique circumstances are, we just don't know. Nobody can figure it out. So it, it, it does reflect the enormous responsibility he has as the king and and his role, you're right, to protect the nation, to protect the people, who are God's people. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. Eckman, John Nelson, can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, It it seems, I just want to make a comment. It seems to me in reading this psalm that uh, David's concern, the enemies, so to speak, are internal enemies. I mean, maybe palace intrigue or in the nation, and um, could be. Could be. It's not, um, he's not worried here about invading armies or, or anything like that. And in a sense, um, it seems to me that he's concerned that if this goes too far and, and he gets overthrown or it puts the country, Israel, into civil war, that he wants some protection from that uh, for the nation. And the other thing is that. <clears throat> How do you deal um, with malicious rumors, and how do you know for sure who's spreading them, and how how can you um, um, prohibit them from continuing to do that? Um, so here, 
here he's calling upon God uh, to take the action. God knows who's doing it. Um, does that make sense to you? Well, yes. And I, and I think you are probably right in your initial comments that this is something, uh, whatever the circumstances are and of great concern and whoever these people are, these are probably people in his government or people in the nation of some role of leadership, the tribal leaders or whatever. And, and so what they're saying about David, perhaps why he says in verse nine, as he focuses on what they're saying, uh, it is detrimental to him, to his rule, also to the Lord. Because don't remember, this is a theocracy. God is ruling Israel through the king. Mm-hmm. And, and so on. But so, I mean, and, and what Rob said earlier, uh, just a little bit ago, that's that role and responsibility of the king to not only protect himself and his court, but the whole nation. And so, uh, you know, that that is probably because he doesn't talk about military responses. He doesn't talk about armies. There's something going on that is very damaging and serious, undermining perhaps his role or authority as king or whatever. But it's malicious, it's deceiving, it's lying, and it, it, those kinds of things are as detrimental and serious as an army laying siege to your city. The other part of your question or comment, um, uh, may God bless you as you think through that. I don't, I mean, you know, a, a person in leadership as a servant leader is always always seeking, well, there's so many always as you can, is one of their roles is to seek the unity and, and, and consensus within your organization. A, a leader that is divisive and constantly pitting people against one another, that is not a good way to rule. And, you know, it's dividing people to enhance your own your own personal esteem. Those things are not good qualities of leader. Ultimately, they're going to do you in. So I don't, I don't think that's what David is facing here, but in some way, um, as the leader, you have to cultivate that kind of unity. And if there's not unity, now if it's in a business, if it's not unity, that person's on the wrong seat of the bus. I either got to change them to a different seat or they got to get off the bus. That's just good leadership. In a, in a ministry, you say, face the same thing. If, if that person is so undermining what you're doing and you have the confidence that, that you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, that person needs to be confronted. That person needs to be dealt with. But David is facing something, it seems to me by his language, that is incredibly threatening and incredibly difficult. And he is pleading with the Lord to act. There's an urgency to the first two verses of this psalm. And God, if you don't act, my entire responsibility and rule. And so, God, I am really depending on you to take care of this. Ultimately, I know you're going to deal with these people. But could you deal with them now? And so that's the imprecatory nature of what David is is pleading with the Lord. But, you know, the, the, the fantastic thing about this psalm is, as I've said now several times, David really knows the character and nature of God. And he has every right to pray this kind of prayer to the Lord. Thank you. All right. Are we done with Psalm 5? Well, no more questions. Let's, uh, let's start Psalm um, 6. And... Uh, let me, uh, I've given a title to this as well. Uh, Deliver me from your discipline, O Lord. Um, psalm 6 is one of those, and again, if you look at superscription, it's telling us this is a psalm of David. And David is writing, again, we really don't know the exact circumstances some have suggested, well, it could be after sin with Bathsheba, possibly, but Psalm 51 is definitively the psalm that's dealing with that. But David is under God's discipline. Now, let's refresh our memories about a couple of things. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it explains to us, and the author of Hebrews is, 
has a reason why he brings this up, but he talks about the chastening and discipline of the Lord in his life. And remember that word discipline is, is a word that is sometimes translated training, but it's always to get us back on the path of loving obedience. We've gotten off the track of our relationship with God. Uh, we have, we have, instead of lovingly walking in obedience with him, we've chosen to defy that. We've chosen to rebelliously choose another path. So the goal of discipline is not punitive. It's always restorative. It's to restore us, to get us back. And what, this, what this, the Hebrew uh, author does in chapter 12 is this God disciplines, chastens us, one, because he loves us, and two, because we're his children. And so David is writing this as a child of God, as a man who has walked with God, but whatever the nature of his sin, it has caused God to chasten him. David, you're off track. I'm bringing you back. Uh, uh, in, in Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, those of you who are spiritual, meaning those of you who are walking with the Lord, bring those who have wandered back. The end of James chapter 5, he talks about those who've wandered from the Lord. You, bring them back. And so God uses other people to chasten us. He uses his word to chasten us, and he uses circumstances to chasten us. It's to remind us of who we are, that the blood-bought price for sin has been paid by Jesus. I'm talking of you and me, this side of the cross, and that we have got to restore and renew our commitment to him. That happens many times during our life. That's why so often the chastening of the Lord is his word. It's like you're raising your children. You say something to your child immediately. They realize they've done something wrong. They come back. Everything's fine. And it's just that that's what God does. And so whatever the circumstances are, where the specifics are, David understands that the Lord is chastening him, but he's pleading with him. Okay, I've got it. Stop it. <laughs> and so it's, it's, to me, it is so applicable because every one of us in this class understands that God does chasten us. God, because he loves us, God chastens us to get us to remind us of who we are, remind us of who he is, and remind us that the only straight path, using the language of Psalm 5, the only straight path is to walk in loving obedience with him. And so look at these, look at these words uh, that, that characterize I'm going to look at the time here. How much time do we have? Oh, Lord, I'm reading from verse 1. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. You could translate that, reprove me not in your anger. Nor discipline, you could translate that, chasten me in your wrath. This language indicates that David is under God's chastening. He understands that. He knows that. And he's pleading with the, the Lord, Lord, I don't want to be chastened because of anger or wrath. Lord, I understand what I've done. I understand what I've done is displeasing to you. Therefore, verse 2, be gracious to me, O Yahweh, O Lord. Be gracious to me. I deserve it. I understand it, but be gracious. If you go to Psalm 51, verse 1, that great penitential psalm of David after his sin with Bathsheba was discovered, that's exactly what he says in that psalm. Be gracious to me, O God. He doesn't say, be just to me, O God. In Psalm 51, he doesn't bring up God's justice until verse 4. David knew his God. He knew the character of his God. So he pleads for God's grace. I am languishing. That is a very difficult Hebrew word to translate. Languishing. When was the last time you heard someone use languish in a sentence? He's withered. He's absolutely, he's absolutely worn out. 
Some have suggested perhaps because of his struggle with sin, perhaps because of this, this, this difficulty and this struggle with sin that has taken its toll. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And more than likely, this is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. My bones are troubled. It doubtfully means literally bones. But he is physically, emotionally weak and distressed. And again, I, I would suggest there's much more than just physical healing here. He is pleading with God based on God's grace to restore him to a meaningful, vibrant, robust relationship with him. Lord, I am worn out. And that's why I do think this is all reflect this meaning what's in verse 2, is all reflecting the consequences of his struggle with the sin. There's an emotional and spiritual distress, and only God can handle that. My soul is greatly troubled, greatly distressed. But you, O oh Lord, how long? And it ends. It's like he breaks off the sentence. How long? What does he mean by that? How long are you going to let this go, Lord? How long am I going to have to struggle with this? How long are you going to have your hand upon me? He just says, how long? So it's, it's, it's a tad mysterious in a way because David is, David is pouring out his heart to God, heart, his heart to God. He understands that God has every right to chasten him. Your, rebu your rebuke, verse 1, your discipline, I understand that, God. But the results and consequences of this struggle I've been having is really taking its toll. How long? How long are you going to let this go on? How how long is my struggle? And so it's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a mystery to some of this as to exactly what is going on here. And I want to say a lot more about this, but you can see invert and again if you follow the notes, I called this a prayer for relief in verses uh, one, uh, two, and into three. Relief, not only from the chastening hand of God, which I think is clear, rebuke, reproof, but also the consequences of whatever the nature of his struggle has been with sin and all that has been the consequence of this. I have a question. Uh, yes. Um, in, um, in this verse, it says, uh, if I read it grammatically, it would, how long would clearly refer to how long is my soul going to be troubled, where, the, where it modifies the verb. Can I count on grammar and yes. punctuation yes. in translation? Yes, I think so. I mean, in this case, not always, but in this case, I think you're right. I mean, he is talking about his descriptive words at the end of verse 2, in languishing, troubled, that, that yes. How long, how long is this going to go on? But it, it is. I mean, in the Hebrew, it's great. he cuts it off. It's like, how long? You want him to, you want him to add some modifiers here. <laughs> what are you talking about? But he doesn't do that. It's how long. But you get this sense of, of this urgency in his heart and his soul. He's experiencing the chastening of God. But he's also, and that's, again, what, and this isn't always original with me as I've studied through this with, with others too. He is also weaving in the consequences of, of, of living with this sin for a period of time. And if you read Psalm 32, Psalm 32 is a description of what that year in David's life was like as he tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba and the ordering of the killing of her husband. Those words in Psalm 32 are not only the change, but the absolute bankruptcy of his spiritual condition in trying to run from God. And I think this is part of what's in verse 2. This is not only a result of the disciplined chastening hand of God, it's a result of his sin and running from God. 
Because if you have been walking with God in loving obedience and you break that hand of fellowship and go off, you're running from God. And that's a miserable condition to be in. And that is part of what I think is in verse two. Lord, I want to come back. I felt your chastening hand, but I felt I've experienced emotionally, spiritually, and physically of what it is like to run away from you. I don't want to do that anymore. So he's pleading for God to lift his hand and exhibit and wash him in his grace. And so it, to me, when I read these verses, I can put myself in, in exactly this situation, not specifically of David, but I mean to what it's like to run from God, to run away from him. You're a child of his. You belong to him. You've trusted him. But there are times when we stumble and fall and we run away. That's a pretty horrible condition to be in. And that's what David is reflecting. Jim, I had a question for you also. Um, can you kind of, uh, David's life has always been sort of a questionable thing of peaks and valleys. And even as we discuss it today, uh, it seems to be sort of a mixed uh, thing of elation and deep valleys. Yeah, I'm sure. Can you put that sort of in like, the progression of his life uh, until he passes, just for like larger categories. The purpose of it is to try to understand, hopefully, that there's a victory here, even though there's valley and, you know, but all according to scripture. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure I know what you're asking me to do. I, if, if you want me to lay out the timeline of David's life, that would take quite a long time. No, I, I, mean, I meant more, more just of like, well, he started out you know, in God's favor, and then this developed, and that was, you know, in the middle of his life, and then at the end of his life, you know, whatever, kind of like that. I don't know if that Well, I think David's life uh, is always framed around that phrase that's used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that David was a man after God's own heart. And you, you, you read about that, and then you read uh, 2 Samuel chapter uh, uh, 12, and you say, what? He's looking upon a woman who's not his wife, and he brings her to his castle and has sex with her. How can he be a man after God's heart? And he tries to cover that up when she becomes pregnant. And then he orders the murder of her husband. And for a year, he covers it up. How can he be a man after God's own heart? Read Psalm 51. Because he does come back to God. He realizes that the only answer to his horrible year of trying to cover up his sin is the grace of God. Hence, he writes Psalm 51. So David's life, just like I think most of our lives, is a series of peaks and valleys. And in those valleys, sometimes it's just the trials and tribulations of living in a broken world. Sometimes it's a result of we are breaking our fellowship with God, and we're running away from him for a period of time. And the man after God's own heart is a man who realizes what he's done and realizes he wants to, desires to, and what will come back to his God. And that's, the, that's why David was a man after God's own heart. And it's, it's a magnificent way to insert your life in, not in the specific, because you and I aren't kings, but our lives into the pattern and life of David. David will sin, he will break fellowship with God, but he always comes back. And that's why these Psalms are so wonderful, because you really see David does know God and really understand who God is, and, and quite honestly, he, who he is. And I think that's one of the, the wonderful things about our growth with the Lord, is we really do understand that the longer we walk with him. And that drives us to, Lord, I don't want to break fellowship with you anymore. I don't want to run away from you, because I've learned the consequences of that. And I think that's what David is saying in verse 2. Well, people are clicking off, and I just looked at my watch, 
you're, you're not allowing me to stay to my time. It's five of one. I've taken major parts of your life away from you. I'm sorry about that. All right. I, I guess I'll pray and then we'll, we'll get ready for next week. All right. Father, we have discussed and studied a, a, a really wonderful Psalm, Psalm five, and we're just cracking it into Psalm six, but uh, Lord, I, I think we can just affirm uh, together as a group. Here is a man who was rebellious, who did at times defy you, but he knew you. He knew your character. He knew who you were, and he constantly appeals to that. And Lord, may that be true of us. May we know you intimately. May we drench our hearts and our minds with your word. May we constantly develop that wonderful discipline of praying without ceasing. We just bring you into every part of our lives as we talk to you about each and everything. And may we be men, therefore, of great faith and confidence in you, which David certainly had. Men who trust you and men who are always, always knowing that when we stumble and fall, we come back to you. You are waiting with open arms. So, Lord, we, we want to know you. We want to know about you. We want to trust you and have confidence in you because there's nowhere else we can go. There's no one else can do for us what you can do. So again, Lord, we're men of faith. We're men of God. We want to represent you well. In that spirit, we ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, everybody.